Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. It was just the most transporting moment. It was, I both remember and don't remember it. You know, I don't really remember anything that happened during. I think for me, if I look back on it, the whole performance went by in like half a second. It was just like, almost like being asleep that I was just so I was in this kind of trance and then when I came out of it it was like no time had elapsed at all but on the other hand everything had changed so it was I was sitting there in the chapel and I remember the beginning the very beginning when he first started playing and I remember sort of what the silence felt like to me there's this great thing that happens you know in in concerts where you have this sort of electricity there when you're waiting for the music to start or if there's a pause in the music and you just hear the reverberations in the hall. So I remember some of that. The combination of this boy and the piece he was playing, which was the Mendelssohn Violin Concerto, it was just for me, I don't know, I'd never, I'd never experienced anything like it before. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Ariana, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. You have a new book out called Declassified, a low-key guide to the high-strung world of classical music. And I absolutely love this book because it was hilarious. As a former musician, I just thought there were so many things in here that I could relate to. Um, but before we get into all of that, I wanted to start asking you, what did your parents do for work? And how did that end up shaping the choices that you've made with your life and your career? Well, that's, I mean, that's such a spot-on question because I, so my parents are both teachers or they were both teachers, now they're retired. Um, but my dad, he was a music theory and piano teacher and a pianist. And my mom is an, or was an English teacher and a writer. So actually this book is really like uh, the culmination of everything they taught me growing up. Yeah. Well, I mean, what was the the narrative about careers around your house? I mean, you know, you have a, a, both parents being educators, but one being a musician. And, you know, as a, I was just telling you here, I mean, having Indian parents it was like, you're going to be a tuba performance major. They're like, no, that's that's a pretty much a dead end, which they were right. 
since, you know, as I said, you know, I'd be looking at obituaries, not job boards to find a job. <laughs> but what was the, the, the narrative about this? Because I mean, you and I both know the reality of this, the odds are so stacked against you right from the get go, if you choose to do this as a career. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, actually, I think one of the reasons that I started so early, so I started playing the violin when I was two and a half. And this was before. Wow. Yeah. And, uh, you know, according to my parents, that was when I decided to become a violinist, but it wasn't. It was just like one of many things that I was interested in at the time. Um, I chose the violin as an instrument, but I had been exposed to it a lot because, you know, my dad is a pianist. He used to, um, I mean, he was always practicing. He was always listening to music. He had a lot of students come by. Uh, so I'm sure there were violinists who came to rehearse with him. And um, I think he was a big factor in why I started playing so, so, you know, I have a two-year-old now and if you ask him what he wants to do, he just wants to get in the car and drive all the time. That's like all he wants to do. And I'll, we don't listen to him unless we actually need to get into the car. So it's a little, <laughs> it's a little weird for someone to say like, oh, you were two and you said you wanted to be a violinist. So we got you a violin. I mean, that's not like the reality of what, what parenting a two-year-old is. So yeah. it's pretty clear you know, that my dad, that I started playing when I was two and a half because my parents wanted me to. And uh, my dad particularly. So he, when he was six, he decided he wanted to be a pianist. And I think six is old enough. So I don't know if you should sign any, you know, contracts that are binding that will <laughs> <laughs> last for the rest of your life. But um, I think six is old enough. So you know what your preferences are. And he he was determined to become a pianist and his parents didn't believe him. So they put it off year after year and he kept asking and then they relented when he was nine. But for piano, that's on the late side. And I mm -hmm. think it does take a huge push from the parents. Anytime there are kids, you know, in music, you have to, you have to be willing to, to find the best teachers and to drive considerable distances to get to them. And it's a lot of money, a lot of work. And I, I think my grandparents were very supportive of him, but I don't think they realized quite how much was involved if he wanted a shot at being a concert pianist. So my dad really felt, um, you know, as as gifted as I think he was, he felt like he was behind for much of his training. And by the time he got to Eastman School of Music and for his uh, graduate school, he really felt like he kind of missed the boat. And he put in eight, 10 hour practice days where he was really just grinding his fingers down to the bone, but he just never felt like he had a shot. So yeah, when his two-year-old was like, I want to play the violin, he's like, let's get this kid a violin. And um, he jumped in and I, I sounded like, am I allowed to swear on your Yeah, phone? yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I sounded like shit. And uh, it was awful. And the only way that anyone could get through those years of absolute excruciating cacophony was, you know, if they're really motivated to yeah. see it through, and my dad was, so. Well, I, I, I can relate to the excruciating cacophony. My sister was just pissed off all the time. She's like, of all the instruments you could pick, why <laughs> did you pick the tuba? Because much like yourself, I was really dedicated to getting good. But mm -hmm. what I wonder is, do you ever have a sense that your dad was trying to live his dreams or fulfill them through you because of this? Um, I mean, I don't think that that's what he thought he was doing. And I don't think, I, I actually, I'm not sure, 
you know, he actually used to joke because we have a very open relationship and we, we've talked about all of this and we always talked about it. And he used to say things like, oh, no, I'm not. I'm not living my life vicariously through you. I just need you to get famous so that then I can accompany you and someone's going to say, where is this man has been? <laughs> so, so it was, this, I mean, that was a joke, but um, I, I think, I really do think it was more that he felt that he hadn't been given this shot and he just didn't want to make the same mistake that his parents had made. And And what's funny is that now I'm doing the same thing with my kids. Like people always ask me, are they going to play instruments? And I'm like, oh, fuck no. <laughs> They're not gonna. Like maybe they'll study the piano because I think yeah. it's really good for development. And hopefully they'll, they'll learn some work ethic through practicing, but I don't want them to be musicians. So yeah. it's every generation tries to compensate and probably overcompensates for totally. the mistakes of the previous generation. Yeah. Well, so I, I wasn't as, early as you were with starting music yet. You know, I think in Texas, if I remember correctly, music education was mandatory for all of junior high. And part of the reason I picked the tuba was because my parents said, oh, we don't have to buy an instrument. The school will provide that for you. Pick that instrument. And I, you know, I started out playing trombone and then I switched and I realized, oh, we'll never have to buy a tuba because they cost more than a car. Uh, yeah. But a good violin does too, as you know. You, you know. But uh, one thing I wonder is when you start that young, when you're two years old and, and you sound probably like you know, you're sacrificing animals while playing. <laughs> uh, I mean, how does your perception of the entire concept of practicing and, and committing yourself to this thing change with age? Because I mean, two, it seems like you're barely aware enough to know what's going on. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I, there are some videos from that time where my dad's practicing with me. I don't maybe... It would have been more like three because when I was two and like I started with a tissue box to, to a ruler. So I wasn't really practicing at the very beginning. I was just sort of learning how to hold the violin mm -hmm. and stand and everything. Um, but then it really was just my dad sort of teaching me how to work through any problem. So so I would try to play something, you know, motor skills aren't really big with yeah. two and three year olds. So. So I would put my finger down. It was in the wrong place. And he'd say, you know, Ari, that was great. I think though, let's next time, let's try to get it more like this. And so it really was more about just teaching me patience and um, yeah, how to like crack something that seems difficult at first. Mm -hmm. But then later on, it became much more focused on the technical minutia. So as I, as I became more solid on the instrument, then I started to be more aware of like, you know, how you make mistakes, what the mistakes are to look out for. You start to get very, um, I don't know, maybe not everyone, but for me, for a while, I felt like I could play freely. You know, once I got the hang of it, then I felt like I was just playing and it was really fun. And then at a certain point, once I started getting good, then came the awareness of like, don't do this, don't do that, don't, you know, don't, um, vibrate too widely don't you have to start the vibrato from the beginning of the note you have to keep your bow exactly at this sound point and you know don't like um yeah keep keep the the speed steady so that there are no swells you, you start to become very aware of all the things you can do wrong and it becomes pretty inhibiting so that for me was a big it it started to feel pretty limiting i guess 
around when I switched to my my so my second teacher who taught me like apart from my so I had a Suzuki teacher and then I had uh, a teacher Mark who was great and he just let me play and sort of helped me form my technique but in a very sort of it was more to serve my enjoyment of playing mm -hmm. and then I had a teacher who was really a drill sergeant and she was like that's when it started with the uh, yeah so she took me off of she took me off of all music also all performing pieces for a year and i just did exercises and etudes to try to <laughs> iron out the yep. yeah and it was really so technical i mean but, but the crazy thing was that i thought it was a great idea like i was like totally on board because yeah. i wanted to be really good and this is what i thought i needed to do in order to to get to that level that i was hoping to reach so Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. 
It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time. And now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. So that desire to want to be really good, I, I can relate to that to a degree. I, I think the reason I was so committed is I remember the day I picked up the tuba in seventh grade, my band director said, you're going to make all state band. I was like, to this day, I have no idea why he said that because I didn't have any natural aptitude per se. But where do you think that came from, that drive to want to be so good at it? For me, it was literally, I want to prove this guy right. Mm. I mean, I think there's some of that. I, I'm sure, like, so again, you know, my dad and I are very open. We've talked about stuff. He sometimes is worried that he gave me a fixed mindset growing up. Do you know? I don't know. Yeah, do you, do you know what? Like, yeah, totally. Yeah. So, um, and he was saying, he, he was talking to me years ago about this study they did with these kids and they, to one group, so they gave them all a test and then they split them into two. And group A, they told, hey, you did really well on this test. It was an easy test. And they said, you must be really smart. And to the other group, they said, you did really well on this test. You must have worked really hard to, to learn these, you know, these things. And then the group, and so they were essentially just giving the kids that they were complimenting, that they were, you know, they were attributing it, attributing it to inherent um, intelligence, mm -hmm. their success. Then these kids, they gave them kind of this fixed mindset and they administered a harder test to both groups. and. The group that had been told you worked really hard, they did much better on the second harder test than the kids who had been told you must be really smart. Because when they encountered these challenges, they just started like uh, questioning themselves and doubting themselves, you know. Anyway, and then the kids, um, they gave them sort of a, a similar test to the first one. And the kids with the the fixed mindset ended up doing even worse than they had the first time around because they were so discouraged by what had happened in the second round with that harder test. And I feel like, um, I mean, now I actually think I'm pretty open to failure and rejection. And that's how I was able to write a book because it also involves a lot of rejection. Oh, yeah. I've but, been there. Um, I know. <laughs> but, but I think that for a while, it is very hard with musicians because you're told as soon as you play something well, then people start telling you how good you are and how how gifted you are and how there are all of these people make all these plans. And, you know, you're sort of raised with the expectation that as as soon as you can get your technique in order, then your voice, whatever that means, will shine through and people will want to hear you. And, you know, there, my dad always talked about the champagne moment. It's like the moment after the concert or whatever it is you've been working towards when you pop the, the cork and you can celebrate. And then all the things that you sacrificed along the way will feel worth it because, because of that moment. And the problem is with music is that you, you have little moments, but then there's always the next concert or the next competition. And so I, I do think that, um, yeah, that I, part of the need to, or my my feeling, my ambition came from, as you say, wanting to prove people right, that that they had believed in me and they thought I was special and I wanted to make sure that I turned out to be so that they wouldn't have been wrong. Mm -hmm. But it's also just um the way that the the training is built. You know, you I think 
if you have a good ear, you can always hear that there are these things that can be better and you hear the recordings and you want to be able to do that too. So it's, it's like, and there's probably, there are probably some inherent personality traits. I think I am pretty obsessive. So uh, I probably have a personality that's just more prone to this kind of uh, yeah. like getting carried away. Oh, I, I, I can relate. I mean, I, the minute my band director said that it was literally, you know, three to four hours a day starting in seventh grade. And I remember we moved into a two bedroom apartment where I couldn't practice and it would be seven in the morning. So before I would go to school, the only place I could practice where I wouldn't wake up the entire family was in our minivan. So I'd literally sit in a minivan oh and practice the tuba for an hour. And did think, you wear did you wear ear protectors or something? I mean, it must have been so loud for you. I, I don't even remember. Uh, but it, it was funny because I was uh, with my ninth grade band director and his wife came and she I was my accompanist in the solo ensemble competition that they had. Mm-hmm. And he said, I don't know if you remember this. He said, but I gave you a solo. And he said, that thing was memorized within a week. He said, you were literally playing it from memory within a week. And so that that actually makes a perfect segue to the next question I wanted to ask you. You were talking about motor skill development. And yeah. I, I, this is something that I've been trying to, to wrap my head around. So I never could pick up another instrument again. I played the tuba, I think, from the time I was in seventh grade till the time I was a junior in college. And speaking of the champagne moment, I realized I didn't love the music. I liked the moment in the spotlight. And that's when I knew I was done. I was like, I don't actually love this. I like the attention it gives me because I'm good at it. Um, But the motor skill development, we'll come back to the champagne moment thing. But (laughs) one thing I I wonder is, you know, how that ability to develop motor skills evolves with age or degrades with age. Because I feel like I've tried to pick up a guitar and I'd ask Dan Coyle, who wrote a book called The Talent Code about this. And he said, look, he's like, are you going to open for Guns N' Roses at their next concert? No, never. <laughs> he said, can you get so good that you impress the shit out of your friends and family? He said, absolutely. It doesn't matter what age you mm-hmm. are. But yeah, I just wonder, you know, as somebody who has made a career out of this, like, what is it? Like, why is it that it was so easy when I was in seventh grade? And now the whole idea of getting that dexterity in my fingers and my guitar, despite the fact that I was pushing, you know, valves on a giant tuba, feels almost impossible. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, I mean, this is this is a really great question. And also, I, I recently got a question, I think someone wrote to me over Instagram and asked, they, they're in high school, and they wanted to know if I thought that they could start playing an instrument, or I guess the violin at the age of 16 or 17 or whatever they were, and whether that was too late. And this is really interesting. And I, I was just writing to them, because we spoke of Northwestern earlier. Uh, Northwestern, there's a faculty member there um, a cello faculty, Hans, Hans Jensen, is that his name? I, I wish that I had looked this up. But anyway, uh, there's a cello faculty member there. And he was, I think he started playing when he was 17, which is super late for a string instrument. But he somehow pushed through and he is amazing. Uh, and I think this is a very rare occurrence i think usually you you do need to start early and i'm not sure exactly what it is i don't know if it's the the brain wiring or the the muscle that you know probably as you grow your muscles do develop in a certain way because you've started um exercising them in this way i'm sure you know actually my left hand fingers are longer than my right hand fingers mm-hmm. because on the violin you know you so that that's the hand that does the 
the you know finger work and then the right hand does the bow. So my fingers on that hand, they got totally stretched. And also my pinky, like if I look at them, so my pinky on my right hand, it does what normal pinkies do and sort of like curves a tiny bit in. Mm -hmm. But my pinky on my left hand is straight because I spent so many hours just trying to stretch it so that it would not do that because you really want it to have maximum extension. And um, I'm, so I'm sure that some of it is the way your muscles develop when you're using them this way every day, yeah. uh, that by the time you're grown up, then you're, yeah, all of that is already in place. So it gives you less flexibility, but it's also, it's also probably the way your brain is wired, the way, you know, it's, it's also so much easier to learn language when you're young, mm -hmm. to learn new languages. Totally. And I've been struggling with that with German because... Oh, I, I live there now. to this day. Like I, I speak my parents' native language. Um, it's a South Indian language called Telugu. I can't mm -hmm. tell you or deconstruct how I learned it. We stopped in India for six weeks. My grandmother didn't speak English. We left and I was fluent. Oh my God. See, that's what I mean. I think you're just like a sponge when you're that age. You just, which is why I still think it's ridiculous. We don't teach foreign languages until seventh grade. Mm -hmm. Like why don't they have yeah. foreign language in kindergarten? You're absolutely right. No, it's just, I, and I'm, that's one of the things I'm grateful for that my kids are going to a, an international school where they get English and German so that hopefully it's not as hard for them. But yeah, we should do more languages. Let's talk briefly about that champagne moment. Uh, because I, I think that for me, that was really the most profound realization was that I don't love this. I like the spotlight. And if all I'm after is the spotlight, that's just a fraction of a moment. Like you said, there's always going to be the next concert, the next thing. I mean, mm -hmm. how does that play out for you? I mean, as somebody who has made a living doing this and, and done this, like, what does that look like in your life for you? I mean, has that been something that you've struggled with? Yeah, definitely. I, it's, it's a very, for me, my relationship with the spotlight is very strange because on the one hand, I think it's pretty clear that I crave attention. I mean, like all the things that I do are, so I want to, you know, play the violin and perform. And then when I stop doing that, then I decide to write a book. So obviously I want people to hear what I have to say. You and I both. I... <laughs> but um, at the same time, I often felt very uncomfortable performing. I would have these weird like moments when I was playing, when I thought like, oh my God, are people, are they interested in what I'm doing right now? Is this like... Are they comfortable in their seats? Why? And I felt very unworthy sometimes. And actually, if God forbid I had a performance that I hadn't prepared enough for, because then I would show up and I'd basically be like, my whole psychology would be a total mess. And I'd be like, I don't deserve to play well. I deserve to be, to be pelted with rotten vegetables. Like I, and then it would be so hard for me, you know, because you can actually like wing it and then do a really good job if the technique's in place. But sometimes I just wouldn't even let myself, you know, I would just be so determined to to punish myself for not having shown up prepared. Yeah. Um. So I had a very weird, and I think when I look at it now, when I look at people like, oh, I was watching the Super Bowl halftime show years ago and late, when Lady Gaga was performing and I was like, oh, I'm just not a performer. Like she's a performer. It's like very clear that she's so comfortable in in this environment on the stage. And I, I actually wasn't. As much as I trained myself to seem comfortable and to seem gracious, I think I just actually wasn't wired that way. But I but there were other things that I did feel really comfortable doing. I loved 
I mean, I loved playing the violin in some ways, you know, alone in my room. And I loved recording. I think recording was like, it was always so much fun because especially if you know there's editing, mm -hmm. then you feel totally free to, to try out whatever, you know, you can really go for all of the interpretation, like the, the points that you want, that you would like to, but in live performance, sometimes it feels too risky because you know, you have to, you have to prepare yourself for the next passage yeah. or something. And, um, and again, there are, there are performers who I think don't have this whole complicated internal monologue and weighing of, you know, do I, do I go for it? Do I hold back? Um, they just sort of let it go and they're probably just much less, uh, in their own heads than I am. But for me, the the recording studio was where I really felt like, okay, like I'll just try to do this. And if it doesn't work, we'll cut it. And if it does, great. And if I fuck up the next passage, then we can edit that out. And, you know, so it gave me maximum freedom yeah. of expression. And that's something I loved. Um, but But I also feel like my relationship with the violin ended up really, um, it was kind similar to your experience. I ended up really feeling like what I cared about or what I spent my time thinking about was the, yeah, the recognition, the validation, um, achievement rather than enjoyment. And, and in my case though, it, I really did love the music. I just, didn't let myself focus on that. And in fact, I got so far away from that, I couldn't even access that love anymore. Mm -hmm. And that was when I really knew that I, that I also, I had to get out because the whole reason I'd started playing, you know, that my parents had started me when I was two and a half was that I, I used to go around belting out these Mozart arias because I was so, I loved this music so much that I, I needed to, find a way to express that. And it just was really unhealthy for my vocal cords to do it that way. And probably really unpleasant for people to listen to. Yeah. So they, they wanted to channel that into something more productive. And, and it really was in those early days, I feel like as awful as I sounded on the violin, I still love listening to music so much, but somewhere, you know, Along the way, I don't know if somewhere during Juilliard, maybe it started a little before, after. I'm not really sure. It was definitely during Juilliard. It wasn't solely after, but it could have started before. Yeah. I started to just lose sight of all of those reasons that I'd been pulled to music in the first place. And what I, yeah, what I cared about was just um, showing off, even though I didn't feel comfortable showing off, you mm -hmm. know, but I, but I wanted to be comfortable showing off and, it was just very complicated and not very healthy. And it was a great step for me to get away from yeah. that. Um, I, I, can, I can completely relate to all of that. Uh, something that you said at the beginning of the book, and I wanted to ask you about this story uh, that really struck me. You said, so when did I pledge my heart, my soul, and all of my waking hours to classical music? I was seven and it was because of a boy. Tell me about that. Um, yeah, so it's a little bit misleading because it wasn't because of a boy that I, you know, wanted to marry or, you know, uh, but it was because of a boy I heard perform. And I think probably in some ways I was a little bit in love with him. 
Um, not in a, he was much older, so it wasn't like a, and I was seven, so it wasn't a real, you know, but I definitely admired him more than I had ever admired anyone in my short life before. Um, so yeah, I, I was seven and I went to a concert with my dad and with my, my teacher at the time, Mark. And this boy was, who was 17 or 18, he was performing his senior concerto with the school orchestra uh, at the school where my parents taught. And he was playing the Mendelssohn Violin Concerto. And it was just the most transporting moment. It was, um, I, I, I both remember and don't remember it. You know, I don't really remember anything during, like that happened during. I think for me, if I look back on it, the whole performance went by in like half a second. It was just like, almost like being asleep that I was just so, I was in this kind of trance. And then when I came out of it, it was like no time had elapsed at all. But on the other hand, everything had changed. So it was, it was like, I was sitting there in the chapel and I remember the beginning, the very beginning when he first started playing. And I remember sort of what the silence felt like to me, the there's this great thing that happens, you know, in, in concerts where you have this sort of electricity there, like when you're waiting for the music to start or if there's a pause in the music and you just hear the reverberations in the hall. And these were just, so I remember some of that. And um, it just, the, the combination of this boy and the piece he was playing, which was the Mendelssohn Violin Concerto, it was just for me, I don't know. I'd never, I'd never experienced anything like it before. And I, I just felt I had to do that. I had to do what he was doing. I had to be on stage playing in front of an orchestra, like controlling the sound like that and like telling this story. I really felt like he wove this whole story. And, um, that was, yeah, that was when I decided. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Wow. Uh, before we get into the, the book, I want to ask you, you know, sort of one more thing day-to-day life for somebody in your position you know, while you're a professional musician as I, I think i told you before we hit record for me i realized the the things that came from that that still influenced my life to this day were habit discipline and consistency you know we published a podcast episode i think two times a week for the better part of 13 years and mm-hmm. that came from that ninth grade band director he taught me the importance of practice he taught me the importance of a habit i mean he was diligent and, and he showed me like what you could accomplish so for you in your, in your daily life like what did this look like and you know have those carried out you know later you know to, to what you've gone on to do yeah i mean i'm totally with you i think that there's so much of the work ethic that's built from this daily practicing in fact you know i i mean i talk about this a little bit in the book too when i first stopped playing the violin um, and I ended up, this wasn't before I totally quit, but I just took a few months off because I was, I'd reached a point where I just like, I knew this was where it was heading, but I wasn't really, I, yeah. So I took some time off and it was a disaster because I had all of this productive energy that I was used to getting out every day. You know, you really wire yourself to have to create and to have to, it's, it's the creation, but it's also, the nitpicking and the, yeah, the obsessiveness that you have to be able to obsess over something. And what happened to me was that this unfortunately coincided with when I was planning my wedding. So I ended up really uh, channeling all of this like critical attention, the scrutiny to all of my wedding plans and particularly my wedding dress. And I ended up just becoming so infuriated by some of the seams in the bodice that I like totally cut, I cut up my wedding dress 
and like was I have no I can't sew at all. I can't sew a button. I really like I couldn't tell you anything about sewing except what I learned while I was trying to reconstruct this dress, which had cost a lot of money. And um, I don't know, it just seemed like the only thing that I could do, I really couldn't stop myself. There was just so much <laughs> creative, obsessive energy that had to get out that I just took this on. And I ended up doing this totally elaborate, like, again, no idea what I was doing, but I created something very complicated and th that didn't function at all in the end. It was, um, it didn't stay up. So that was a big issue that I had to deal with. But, yeah. um, yeah, <laughs> it's much better when I have something like a book to write because then mm -hmm. I can work on. And I find, actually, I find, I don't know about you, but the issue for me with performing was always that you spend all of these hours in your practice room, like scrubbing away, polishing, trying to make your interpretation clean and clear. And then it comes down to that moment in the performance and you have to execute it. And if you mess up, then like it feels like all the practicing that you did didn't matter. It yeah, it was for nothing. Yeah. Even though I, I think we just don't have perspective. So I think probably like to most audience members, they're not noticing the mistakes that we're noticing. But it feels <laughs> like, you know, you feel awful about it. And what's great with oh. writing is that you can you can work on a sentence for as many hours as you want and then it stays that way. I mean, usually then you change it anyway because, you know, you, yeah. you decide well, to go into it. It's, it's funny you say that because I, I think that people don't always ask me about the process of writing a book. You know, I said the most empty part of it is actually when the book is done and you're holding this thing in your hand. I was like, because it doesn't it like that it pales in comparison to what it represents. The hours sort of belaboring in a room. But I'd always like the actual process of writing more than the actual promotion part where you have to, you know, basically go on, you know, interviews and do press and all this stuff. And at that point, you're in this like moment of things you can't control, which is how many copies is this going to sell? How well is it going to be received? Um, whereas, you know, I, I think I like the fact that you could control the, the, the process part. And, uh, you know, I'd always told people, it's like, yeah, you'll spend two years writing a book and get to spend two days talking about it. That's the reality. Mm -hmm. So if you don't like the writing, then you shouldn't write a book. Yeah. Um, if all you want is you know, bringing us back to that sort of moment in the spotlight. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, I think, you know, to me, I think the discipline was a big thing. And one of the things that you actually say is that the difference between a talented and untalented violinist at the beginning is not a difference of good or bad. It's a difference of whether you'd sacrifice your firstborn or only your favorite aunt in order to make the noise stop. <laughs> and then you, you know, go on to quote somebody, you say, either you didn't practice or you have no talent. The kick in the nuts highlights an important truth. A talented person who hasn't put in the time will sound very much like a person who isn't talented. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that that's true for any art form. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that there, people have this idea that like, oh, you know, when I get to this level, I'll be able to rest on my laurels. I was like, no, uh, that never happens. Mm -hmm. Stephen Kotler put it well. He said, yeah, if you're doing anything in the professional arts, he's like, you're always somebody's bitch. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, it, it really never. And I guess this is also the thing that I I think we don't really realize when we're training. And you, you said, I think it might have been before we started recording, but you were saying that your your dad talked to you about, he sort of talked you out of, uh, you know, going into it professionally and maybe saved you a lot of agony that way. And I, I do feel like there are so many things that I didn't know about having a career performing uh, until it was too late and all my degrees were in music performance. You know, there are, it, it never gets comfortable. It's like, actually, okay, I was watching 
so long ago. I think it was an episode of Elementary and uh, Sherlock was talking about his, he was talking about addiction. And I know that obviously, like, I, I'm not trying to compare my experiences as a violinist to to someone struggling with alcoholism. But there was one thing that he said that I think reminded me of of some sometimes the way that I felt with the violin. He said it was like um, there was this leaky faucet and the best you could hope for was that it wouldn't drip, right? Like you kept fixing it and the best you could hope for was that it would sort of not malfunction. And I feel like that's where I got to with the violin in performance that I felt like there was so much maintenance and I wasn't deriving joy from performing anymore because I had sort of emotionally disconnected from performing since I found it very challenging to um, actually feel emotions and execute things at a technical or to meet my technical standards at the same time because you know when you feel powerful emotions it it has impacts on it, it impacts your hands you maybe your fingers sweat or you shake and that is really detrimental to playing technically well so I felt like I had disconnected and I wasn't getting much joy from playing but the best that I could hope for was that I wouldn't flip that my fingers would stay in the shape that they were in and that night after night when I was playing the same piece that I would be able to sort of recreate the the best standard that I'd reached from that set of concerts. So I really, again, I don't think it's this way for everyone, but for me, it was um, definitely not, yeah, it definitely wasn't something that felt good. Yeah. So you, you you kind of alluded to some of this when you were talking about the wedding dress. And this is something I, I wonder, because I've talked to a lot of uh, professional athletes whose athletic careers inevitably come to an end at some point, or some who were superstars in college, you know, basically had spent 25 plus years with this idea that they were destined for you know, the NFL or NBA. And, and then the reality sets in that they're not going to make it. Mm. Uh, but you made it, but then decide to, to leave. Like, how do you you know, rediscover an identity or recreate an identity when something like this has been such a huge part of your identity for so long? This is, this was a question that I asked myself a lot when I started to realize maybe I would be happier not as a violinist because, you know, my, my parents had sometimes questioned when I was going through high school. It was very, I was at an academic high school, so practicing was very tough. And then, of course, when you decide to apply for colleges, then it's important to know, you know, if you're going to go the conservatory route, then you're not going to have that many options uh, outside of performing. So it's, we did examine things then and, but I, only I didn't. So, so I, I would be, people would ask me questions like, are you sure that this is what you want? And I didn't even really think about it. I was like, of course, it's what I want because this, this was who I was. It was what I was good at. I was Ari, the violinist. And, um, you know, that was, it was my niche. It was, to, and when you grow up with something like that from such a young age, that's such a part of your identity, it's just very hard to imagine yourself without it. And um, there were also a lot of parts of myself that I think I hadn't really fed during the time when I was so focused on the violin. So I wasn't aware of all of the other 
qualities that I had that I might value in myself. You know, I was so focused on on this side of myself. And when that side wasn't going well, I was very unhappy about it because there was nothing to balance it. And when I got to the point where thankfully I ended up meeting my husband and then moving to Berlin right before I made this decision. And moving to Berlin was great because it was also where my sister was. So I I think there's something about family that really like, you know, your family members, especially the ones you had from birth, they, they know you so well and they know all the sides of you, even the sides that you don't pay attention to. And so being around my sister and being with my now husband, who's just one of these people who's like so genuine that I think it's it's very hard to put on airs around him. You he makes you you have to be yourself because he's so much himself and he's so comfortable and he it feels like he's so like he sees into you, you know. So I felt like a lot of the the behaviors that I I mean, not that I was like prancing around or anything, but you know, there there are certain practice behaviors when you're when you're performing when you're greeting your audience members, you know, you have these little spiels and you have these things that you say and like these smiles that you give. And, and it's not that they were never genuine, but they are also, you become aware of them and how they come across to people. And then when you, when you're with someone who has none of that, then it feels like disingenuous to use any of your arsenal of, I don't know, whatever charms or whatever you, you've rehearsed for other social occasions. And it really, so I feel like the combination of Stefan and my sister really allowed me to like connect with some sides of myself that had nothing to do with music. And then in doing that, I started to also start to reconnect with music that as it was separated from the violin. So I started to listen to music with Stefan, not to play it for him uh, on the violin, I mean, but to find recordings of it that I that I enjoyed. And I started to realize like, actually, it could be a pretty cool thing to be able to listen to music and to not have to worry about executing it. And that, that sort of grounded me. And, and I remember my parents also saying at around that time that, sorry, I'm like getting emotional talking about all this, but, um, I remember they said that the way I was or the way I started behaving then reminded them of how I was when I was like a kid before I'd become serious about the violin. And when they said that, it also that even just hearing that from my parents made me feel really emboldened because I felt like, oh, like wait, that means that there's this whole side there that that has nothing to do with the violin that I can access, that I can that that can be where I live, you know? And it's not that, it's not that the violin side is not also a side of me. I mean, again, certainly the productivity and I haven't ruled out the possibility that I would someday try to play again. I just don't think that I could do it in a way. Um, I'd have to find a way of doing it without throwing myself back into this mindset. <laughs> but, and I don't know how, I don't see how I could separate it because I don't think I'd like to sound bad, you know, so yeah. I don't. Do you not it, play at all? I know I don't play at all now. Wow. Yeah. And um, I, I played, I played for a friend's wedding like two, two or three years ago. I played at their wedding, um, yeah. and that was so. So just for a month, I picked it back up, and that was the only time. Uh, yeah. 
But yeah, so so I really then just started to focus on the other things and and the fact that I that I I mean maybe not in talking, but I think when I write, I'm actually kind of funny, you know, and like this is a side of myself that that only came out when I was really angry when I started ranting about things. Then sometimes yeah. it would come out um, <laughs> the hyperbolic whining about <laughs> the world and various things that were happening to me, um, and that and so. It really was. It was very therapeutic also to write the book because it was also a way of reconnecting with the both. It was sort of reconciling my relationship with music with these other more personal sides of myself, too. Well, I've been speaking of the book. I haven't really given you a chance to talk about it much. <laughs> um, and, you know, we may probably got another 10 or 15 minutes. But, you know, one of the things that you say is that you'll leave these pages with enough expertise to join the ranks of those insufferable connoisseurs who've been scaring you away from this music for all those years. Only you won't join their ranks because you'll know better. A true gentleman, as my dad likes to say, is someone who can play the accordion but doesn't, which <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking to myself, yeah, I mean, you know, tubas and accordions, I feel the same way about. I, you know, I had a, a friend who played the soprano sax when we were in high school, and uh, he took his uh, date on prom night, and he serenaded her with that Kenny G song, Forever in Love, and I'm just like, you're an asshole. I can't do that. <laughs> and like, you know, the tuba guarantees you're not going to have a date for prom. <laughs> let alone be able to serenade somebody. But uh, talking about the, this, uh, you know, because I, I think to your point, it, classical music is one of those things where, you know, like you say, uh, you know, as most people think of it, it, it isn't a real thing. It's really just centuries of all sorts of music shoved into one hodgepodge of a genre. And the funny thing is, if you listen to some of your favorite popular music, you hear threads of it in that music, too. Absolutely. Yeah. No, no, no. I mean, there, it, there's been so much influence that actually one of the, I mean, I don't want to like, you know, quote a blurb from my book, but there, but one of the people who, who wrote a blurb for me, he's, um, a movie executive now, but he's an amazing violinist. And he referred to this music as, um, the most resilient and influential artistic form in modern history. And I think that's really true. I mean, it is think about how long it survived and also the influence it has now. And even, you know, I rail against the medieval period in this book because I personally react really badly to medieval music. But <laughs> um, but there is actually a lot of this influence in a lot of the pop songs now. You hear some of this return to some of these early sounds. Um, it, it's used in all kinds of, you know, all kinds of music. And there's certainly a lot of the Baroque in I actually I didn't even know that this was a thing, but apparently Baroque pop is a whole form. It's like a subgenre of pop. Mm. And apparently uh the Coldplay song Viva La Vida, which I absolutely love, is Baroque pop, which makes so it makes perfect sense that I love it. But it really so there are these these techniques and elements that find their way into pop music and these chord progressions. I mean, Mozart used this, um, I'm gonna get technical, but this, you know the no, I'll so, you know, the heart and soul chord progression, it's like the one, six, four, five or one, six, two, five. Yeah. And this is used all over pop music, all over pop songs. I basically instantly love any song or piece that uses this chord progression. And you find it everywhere in Mozart and all over the classical period uh, music from that era. So it's definitely all over the place. And it's also, yeah, as you say, it's not. And as I, as I talk about in the first chapter, it's just classical music isn't a real genre. It's just like the only kind of music that existed for, for, or that was written down anyway, for hundreds of years 
And it wasn't built for these aficionados that I refer to. It was just built for, it was made to express things that the composers were feeling. Sometimes it was composed for parties. Sometimes it was composed for ceremonies. Sometimes it was composed for people's enjoyment. But it, these people weren't specifically the, the aristocracy. They, they were all kinds of people. And um, one of the other things that I that I highlight in the book is the more human side of these composers. So these composers who are so often referred to or, or um, credited with composing music for snobs, some of them were like and total anti snobs. They often hated their employers who were the rich ones paying them. <laughs> and, and also Mozart. I mean, Mozart wrote the most like creatively disgusting poems about poop, mostly like his poop and like all, his whole digestive tract gets a shout out in a lot of different places. He wrote this. Um, actually, there's more than one that he wrote, but he wrote one canon called Lick Me in the Ass. And it's not, you know, you can't like he you can't call his music country club music when this was a guy who was writing like quite seriously sitting down. I mean, he's joking as well, but writing songs about you know, his ass and other people's asses. And he, he, he didn't, he didn't put this music on a pedestal. You know, he, I think he believed in his music and there's, there are times when he discusses it and he shows that he thinks it's great music, but he also didn't take it too seriously. And I think it's important for people to know that and also to know that, you know, in case you don't like Mozart, we were just discussing him. Shostakovich, who's also a classical composer, doesn't sound like Mozart. Neither does, you know, Bartok. And there are often references, but it's a totally different treatment, uh, totally different sound worlds. And there is also contemporary music, which is also part of classical music, but sounds also completely different. So it's not really possible to have one feeling about the entire genre. Yeah, no, I. It's, it's funny because I, I know all of this only because I was a band geek, and mm -hmm. so I, I either forced to listen to or listen to some of this out of choice. But um, speaking of band geeks, I think this is something that I, I was really curious about. Are these just observations you made, or is there some truth to this? Although I always jokingly say I'm like stereotypes exist because people validate them. <laughs> uh, like Indians, you know, all Indian parents want their kids to become doctors and engineers. I was like, that's kind of true. Yeah, yeah, we have enough evidence at this point and enough <laughs> Indian doctors that we can say, you know what, that stereotype has been validated by actual evidence. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, like I, I thought this was you know, hilarious. Like you say, the violinist personality represents one of those difficult chicken egg cycles in which it's unclear whether our competitive perfectionist training is responsible for our competitive perfectionist tendencies or whether it's our competitive perfectionist tendencies that are responsible for our competitive per perfectionist training. and. You know, you go on to describe, you know, like sort of each groups of people. When you say brass players always struck me as the rowdy fraternity brothers of the orchestra. And I think the funniest thing is so like they're often attractive when they're young, but the men tend to go bald early in life. I'm like, probably another good reason that I didn't do this. <laughs> uh, but talk to me about that. Like, you know, I mean, is there something in a personality that draws certain people to certain instruments? Because even you, you mentioned the oboe and I'd asked my my ninth grade band director about this when uh, we met up for dinner the other night because I. I never forgot when uh, one of the uh, kids in our class, I think he was a percussionist, his dad was a, a doctor who had went to Curtis and uh, been a professional oboe player, but then went back to medical school. 
And when he went up to ask the band director if he could switch to the oboe, the first thing he asked was, what's your GPA? Um, and he said, he was like, well, he's like being an oboe player is incredibly meticulous. You have to make your own reads. He said it just requires a certain personality type. But yeah, I mean, talk to me about this. Is, yeah. is there like, is this anecdotal evidence we're talking about or observations? Like, you know, what is it that draws certain people to certain instruments? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, so this was definitely just based on my observations. Of course, it's like playful and it's not, you know, you can't make these generalizations seriously because there will always be exceptions. But there there do seem to be these archetypes. Certainly, you know, if you think about singers, right, opera singers, it makes sense that the type of person who would be drawn to singing opera would also be outgoing and on the theatrical side and maybe um, fond of themselves, you know, because, because (laughs) no, no, I mean, it makes sense because, you know, you're, you're, uh, you have to love your voice, right? So you have to love yourself and you have to be confident and, so, so that makes sense to me. And I don't know. I think part of it is, yeah, it's, it's what, what the instrument attracts. Mm-hmm. So the violin has so many great solos, right? There, there's so many moments where the violin shines and the violin is also given all of this hard passage work. So I think it, it, it does attract people who like a challenge, who are like, um, you know, if you want to be lazy, then you choose a different instrument. Yeah. Uh, but. I think, I mean, the reality is that all of these instruments require a lot of work. It's not that, you know, I'm speaking within the, the, the realm of the classical instrument. So lazy would always be a relative term. But um, so, yeah, partially what the instrument attracts, but then probably also what the training and what that particular set of like when, when you play a role over and over again, that also probably shapes you. Yeah. So. If if you're a violinist and you're used to getting the melody all the time and having this hard work and being exposed uh, in high pressure situations, then I think that does affect the person that you become. And the same goes for, yeah, if you're a violist and you people tell jokes about you all the time, <laughs> then you also probably become pretty like lovely and laid back. And um, yeah. I don't know. Well, it's funny you say that because I, uh, growing up, I, because I had made Allstate Band, I was always a featured soloist in my uh, band and got to do concertos. And then mm-hmm. when I got to college, I remember I was in the orchestra for one semester. And I remember going to this, I think we played Dvorak's Eighth Symphony. And the tuba part in Dvorak's Eighth Symphony, you're going to laugh when you hear this. You know what it is? No. One whole note. I'm like, did some tuba player fuck his wife? Like, what happened here? Uh, like, I know. Why, why would you even make them sit why there? Is, I literally <laughs> sat in the, the back of the row, like, waiting for this conductor to cue me for my one whole note. I'm like, would anybody notice if I wasn't here? Like, seriously, why did he even put this in? This is, like, so unnecessary. Oh, my God. No, it is. It's so funny. Um there, and there's all this, I think with, with the, the lower brass instruments, this happens a lot. I think there's a great video that some, so someone in, in a major symphony orchestra, he, I think it was a trombone player, maybe bass trombone. I'm not sure. And he recorded his whole, yeah, contribution to this Rachmaninoff symphony. He just put a camera up and recorded all of the notes that he played during it. And, it, but yours would have been an even better example because one note that's totally crazy for him, it was, you know, like five notes or something. Yeah. And that was his point. Um, 
but it is totally ridiculous. And I also think, and I wrote this in the book, that I think that is a different kind of really high pressure situation, though, because you counting is one of the most stressful things in, oh my in art, right? Because like, what if you, if you get lost, if you if you lose track of where you oh, are? Uh, this was my my Achilles heel as a musician. I remember sitting principal to an all-state band my junior year in high school, and the conductor looks at me. He was like, what the hell? It was like, he's, you know, and I, this was something I was absolutely terrible at. I remember even for my All-State band auditions, uh, when I was a freshman, my band director literally, he was like, all right, we're going to play this at half the tempo. We're going to use a metronome. We're going to get this like as accurate as you can possibly get it. And I remember he made me audition playing it at, I think, a frac- like a half a tempo that it's supposed to be played at. And mm-hmm. I ended up being second chair uh, in our region. And the other guy was a, a senior. And mm-hmm. people called me the kid who looks like a freshman, but is actually a senior. <laughs> but he was spot on. I, I that that whole idea of accuracy and slowing it down really stayed with me. But yeah, I, I totally get. It. I know what you mean. Like, because that is literally that was literally my Achilles heel. Yeah. No. And I mean, I always found so sometimes people would you know like friends ask you to page turn, or my dad used to ask me to page turn for him. This is it's similar. It's just so stressful because it's it's almost a thankless job if you have one note or if you're just turning pages. <laughs> You can fuck it up in myriad ways, right? But you, but you will rarely get credit for, you know, no one's going to be like, great job. You did such oh, that a good one job. Whole note, yeah. yeah. That nobody even heard. Exactly. Well, but if you played it in the wrong piece, uh, in the wrong place, someone would have heard it. That's, that's the irony, right? Like when you play it in the right place, there's so much in the texture that it probably doesn't make a difference. But if you play it two measures early, then people notice. Yeah, especially with a tuba. That would be pretty hilarious, actually. Yeah. Uh, wow. Well, this has been amazing. I've had so much fun oh, talking same. to you. Um, so I have one final question, which is how we finish all of our interviews at the Unmistakable Creative. Mm-hmm. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? I mean, I want to say something like authenticity, you know, that I think eh, it's actually a question that I struggled with a lot because because of this issue of of having your own voice as a player, right? That um, when you're when you're growing up and you think that all you have to do is perfect your technique and that you'll have some inherent voice that shines through, it's really difficult to come out into a place like Juilliard and then beyond and to feel like even if you're doing well there, there are still so many amazing uh, violinists, in my case, who are just as amazing, you know, and they, yeah, we have all slightly different things to say, but if you, if there are enough voices out there, then sometimes it feels like yours doesn't matter. At the same time, I think in my case, I wasn't being that true to my voice at, at that stage of my development. I was definitely holding a lot back for the sake of technical perfection. And I think in writing this book, I've, I found a different kind of voice. You know, it's a more literal voice. But um, I think that that's, it's really committing to, to your own beliefs and to your own stance and anything that is truly what it is can't possibly be, you know, it's like a snowflake or a fingerprint or uh, it can't possibly be duplicated. And then, of course, the question is whether it matters, but I think it does. I think it's like this, uh, this line from the Camelot musical, right? The let it not be forgot that once there was a spot for one brief shining moment that was known as Camelot. And it's like what, what you said about writing a book. Maybe you don't get to talk about it more than a few hours after you spend a whole year or two writing it. But 
I think it matters that you put something out there that true to what you believe and that is, you know, still balanced, hopefully, but that represents yourself. And I think that that's sort of, it, it doesn't have to be a book, but it can be with anything that you do. I think that it's that if you're being yourself, then there won't be another thing like it. It will be unmistakable. Mm, amazing. Well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story and your wisdom and insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, your work, the book, and everything that you're up to? Um, well, I, so I have a website. It's like all of my names. Um, any version of my name will probably get you there. But I think the easiest one for spelling is uh, arianawarsawfan.com. So that's like Ariana with two N's and then Warsaw, like the capital of Poland, and fan like an electric fan and all one word. Um, and I also, I'm on, I'm on Instagram and TikTok and Twitter. Uh, not very good with any of those platforms, <laughs> but, but very reachable in case people want to have a conversation. And yeah, and then the book is, I, hopefully it's available everywhere. And if it isn't, then you should ask whatever bookstore you're talking to, to get it. <laughs> but it's at Barnes and Noble and Amazon. And, um, yeah, most of the bookstores that I've checked have, carried it so hopefully awesome and for everybody listening we will wrap the show with that hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter that's why i teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create pretty litter its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80 percent less than clay litter Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. 
The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.